0: It's really interesting. Joshua chapter 14. Well, let me, just, let me just read it. Let's get a sense of this, and then I'll tell you what's interesting. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what's interesting. Aging is interesting. It's, it's very interesting. Joshua 14, chapter 6, or <laughs> verse 6. The aging is interesting. I'm going to blame everything on aging this morning. Joshua 14, 6, "'Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kinezite, said to him, "'You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as in my heart.'" Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I follow the Lord my God fully. I like this guy. So Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live. Just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day for you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Yefunah, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Yefunah, the Kinezite, until this day because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron, was formerly Kyriah to Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and then the land had rest from war. Father, would you give us rest this morning even as we consider more the fight and the warfare and the things that we are engaged in, the challenges and the battles ahead of us in this world. May we rest in you even as we go out to fight. And may the rest strengthen us for the fight, and may we be encouraged. And I ask, Lord, especially, that as we age in this world, that our physical limitations would not dim in the slightest the spark of our spiritual faith and our trust in you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, this morning for just for teaching for us all, youngest to oldest, in Jesus' name, amen. Aging is funny. I, I saw an article that was just talking about the use of emojis, you know, the little emojis on your phone, the little, uh, they, they started out yellow, but now you can get them in any skin color, and, and the little you know little thumbs up, the little peace sign, other things that I wouldn't use, nor would I encourage you to use, but um, little smiley faces and hearts and all of that. Well, this article said that one particular emoji is now considered passive-aggressive. So be careful if you use this one. You fire off a thumbs-up to someone who uh, is a member of Gen Z. That's passive-aggressive, bro. The thumbs-up emoji is considered rude, and according to Gen Z, it makes people who use it look old. (laughs) Among the list of emojis that make texters look old to Gen Z, the red heart which I use all the time. The red heart, the clapping hands, and the check mark. So you you just might wanna be aware of that. Um, As you use those things, it might make you look old. What kind of a culture are we living in? Goodness sakes. George Burns. You guys remember George Burns? Okay, okay. He died in 1996, so Gen Z wouldn't even know who he was. But that famous old centenarian comedian, man, was he funny and was on the stage all the way from vaudeville into the movies into the 90s. He said this, three things, three quotes from George Burns because you know of the spiritual depth. You know you're getting old when you stoop down to tie your shoelaces and wonder what else you can do as long as you're down there. <laughs> He also said, by the time you're 80 years old, you've learned everything. You only have to remember it. (laughs) And finally, you can't help getting older, but you don't have to get old. And I like that one. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 31, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the honor of old men is their gray hair. And that's not being tongue in cheek. That is not poking fun. That's what the Lord feels. That's how the Bible teaches. The honor is to those who have experience, those who are older, those who have lived a few years, who have the mileage behind them. The gray hair, rather than being a sign that someone should be headed for the home, ought to be a sign that someone should be headed for the seat of honor and the place of respect. These are the ones to whom we should be going for our understanding, those who have experienced this world. Gray hair, it indicates longevity, some degree of experience, and depending on your spiritual condition, and that's important, the gray hair can also indicate wisdom. Now, you guys have all heard the, even the word curmudgeon, the cantankerous old curmudgeon. You really have two ways to go in this life. If, if you walk in the spirit, you will grow in wisdom. If you walk in the flesh, you will grow curmudgeonly. And, and I've seen both take place. Caleb, we call him, Kalev in the Hebrew. Kalev crossed the Jordan River and he began to fight for Canaan at the age of 78. That's when they began the fight, and Caleb is in the midst of it. It's now been a seven-year passage of war, so from the beginning of of Joshua up now to chapter 14, we we know it's seven years because of what Caleb tells us. So they've been fighting for the land, They've they've been working the land, and here it is seven years later, and he who was 78 is now 85, but the old dog ain't ready to retire. Not even close. And I read about Kaleb and I see his story, and I think, wow, I want that kind of spiritual tenacity when I'm 78, and I want it when I'm 85, that, that tenacity that just says, I am not done. How many of you would like that kind of vibrancy and passion and, and energy right now? I mean, sign me up. I see Linda in the back going, mm-hmm. Sign me up. I don't want the twinkle in my aging eyes to be the sun bouncing off my Coke bottle glasses. You know, I want it to be because the spirit is alive and active and working in me. I don't wanna slow down, I wanna gear up. As Kalev said, for war and for going out and coming in. I'm I'm only 58, so let's just get that out there. I am only 58 years old and yet staying in sounds better than going out or coming in. I just want to stay in. (laughs) It's a comfortable place. But no, listen, Paul said for forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Listen, if you are sitting here this morning breathing the air, smoky though it may be, you are not done. It is not time to retire. It is not time to step back and let the youngins take care of it. no. No, we need more kalevs. Hebrews 12, verse one says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of faith. So we've come to part three now in in the book of Joshua, and a lot of people get to this point and they just kind of skip on ahead because there's a lot of places and a lot of names and there's a lot of, of real estate for the next several chapters. Hey, if it's in the Bible, it's here for a reason. So we're gonna look at every verse, we're gonna walk our way through all of this. But part three in this book, if you recall, part one, chapters one through four, we called passage. And that was their crossing in, entering into the promised land, passage. And then chapters five through 12, which we've studied through, uh, perseverance. Perseverance. And that's all the contending for the promises, the fights and the battles and the going forward and the really taking the land Now we come to chapters 13 through 21, and we're doing a main part of chapter 14 this morning. We'll go back to 13 on Wednesday night and and catch it up there. But chapters 13 through 21, we called possession. Possession, this is the part where they are now maintaining the promise. You see, the promise is fulfilled in that at this point, Israel is the dominant national entity in the land. They have not taken all of the land, but they are the dominant entity. You, you would no longer call this Canaan's land, this is Israel's land, and the Canaanites knew it. And they had taken out the major strongholds and fought some amazing battles. But the rite of passage is not yet over. And I, I really sat and thought about that, not that it really matters too much, but, but in calling our study through Joshua rite of passage, I thought, well, is that over after chapter four? Chapter five, when they come on into the land, so should I call it maybe something else? No, the rite of passage is the entire book. You and I are still in the rite of passage. Even as we've talked about the promised land not being a picture of heaven, but of the Christian life, we are still in the passage. So though they have made passage into the land, though they have now conquered the, the majority of the strongholds, and they are the major national presence in the land, the rite of passage is ongoing. Remember, it's not only the crossing of a threshold. It's more than a moment. It's before, during, and after the threshold. It's the whole deal. But an effective rite of passage requires something that Kalev has, and that's vision. We've gotta have vision. When we start to lose sight, and I'm not talking eyesight, when we start to lose spiritual sight, then we lose perspective and we lose reason and we begin to shrink back. We have to have vision. Proverbs 29 to 18 says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. The King James translation of the same verse is, listen, where there is no vision, the people perish but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Why does one say the people are unrestrained where there is no vision, and the other one say the people perish where there is no vision? Well, the word that's translated, both are translated from, is and yipara. <laughs> yipara. and it means slipping through the fingers. So without vision, it slips through your fingers. The King James says you perish. It's like life slipping through your fingers as you die away without vision. The NASB says the people are unrestrained because you can't hold on. The tighter you hold on, the more it slips through your fingers. You could put it this way. Without vision, we lose our grip on reality, which is the country's problem right now. There is no vision for the future. There is no vision for the kingdom of God. There is no vision for that which is right and true and holy, and where there is no vision, people lose their grip on reality and start talking about and doing crazy things, things that do not make any logical or even biological sense. Why no vision? And what's all that got to do with keeping the law? It says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, they perish, they lose their grip, but happy is he who keeps the law. What does the law have to do with it? Torah gives vision. The law gives vision. It is packed, as we've seen, with prophecies of Jesus, with the gospel, with the coming kingdom, and Israel's, and our eternal hope for the future. So, In Torah, we have vision. We see beyond. We don't have the limited eyesight of this world. We see far beyond that. But when we get stuck in the now, life becomes unrestrained. We lose our grip, perish the thought. A successful rite of passage. It requires vision, and Caleb has it. Follow this through with me. Verse six begins. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal. Note that. Remember that. The sons of Judah drew near, and Caleb, the son of of the Kenizzite, said to him. So, Caleb comes with the sons of Judah. Caleb, Caleb, as we call him. Caleb means bold. It means impetuous. No doubt, some of his fellow spies, uh, what now, 45 years before, some of his fellow spies thought Caleb was impetuous. Let's take the land. No, come on, Caleb, what are you thinking? We can't take the land. It's, It's way beyond our capability. Besides, we're grasshoppers, and the Nephilim are there. Comment on that in just a minute. Caleb wasn't impetuous, but he was bold. The other meaning for this name, which I love, is dog. In fact, the modern Hebrew is kelev. Kelev, you would call your dog a kelev. What'd you get for Christmas? I got a kelev. Kalev, Caleb, dog, that's the the main translation for the word is dog. Now I affectionately call Kalev mad dog. Mad dog because of this old dog's fight. He's still got plenty of fight in him. 85 years old, and he's good to go, and he wants to take on more. What can I do next? Ah, yes, them giants and them thar hills, and he wants to go fight giants. Note that number one, this dog was a fighter. This dog was a fighter, as he'll say down in verse 11 for war, for going out and for coming in. This dog, 85 year old, Caleb, is a fighter. But I want to clear something up before we go any further and that's a little ancestral dispute about his name. Oh, not the name caleb but verse six tells us that he is son of Yathuna the Kinezite. You might not have ever noticed this, but if you look back, find the word "kinnezite, The Kinezites are listed among the 10 nations whose land the Lord promised to give to Abram and his descendants and he's son of Yefunah the Kinezite, how does that work? They originated, the Kenizzites. we believe on the Arabian Peninsula, they migrated up into the region around Syria and Jordan today, but apparently, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, this people, or at least some of the Kinezite tribes, joined up with Israel, joined into the covenant of Israel, that is, Some Kenizzites became outsiders who were believers in Yahweh. They wanted to join. They wanted to be part of this. That Israel actually was picking up, in the same way they picked up Egyptians leaving Egypt, that they did pick up some people along the way, some tribes who saw them coming and met with them and made peace with them and wanted to walk with them. And and as they learned of Yahweh and they learned of his covenants and they learned of this people, they wanted to be part of this. So we think some Kenizzite tribes were part of this, which is why we see a Kenizzite here in the midst of Israel. The other thing that's interesting, his his father's name, I don't wanna get ahead of myself, wait a minute. Yeah, his father's name is Kenaz, Kenaz the Kenizzite. You can't make this stuff up. Kenaz the Kenizzite, apparently this is what we think happened and it's because it's spotty. We're not really told specifically but it's supposed that Canaz the Kinezite married Caleb's mother. His father having died in the wilderness, so his blood father died in the wilderness. But this this Canaz ended up marrying his mother, and so he became Caleb's father. Are you with me on that? He would be his stepdad. But he was a Kinezite. and and it's interesting. It, Caleb could not be a blood son to Kenaz. I'll explain why. Joshua chapter 15, verse 17 tells us who Caleb's Caleb's brother is. His name is Othniel, son of Kanaz, brother of Caleb. Judges 1:13. Othniel, the son of Kanaz, Caleb's younger brother. But he himself was not a literal Kinesite, because listen. Kalev is of the tribe of Judah. He's a Judahite. He's of the lineage of Judah. He is not of the lineage of this Kanaz the Kenazite. Why is he called a Kenazite? Well, in, in part because perhaps this Kenaz m- married his mother and became stepdad and so he was there listed kind of with the Kenazites. That's, that's very much a possibility. It's what a lot of the commentators believe. But he is of the tribe of Judah. As you saw at the beginning of verse six, the tribe of Judah comes to Joshua and then Caleb begins to speak. Why the tribe of Judah? Because that's, that's his tribe. That's his tribe. Numbers chapter 13, verse six, back where it gives the list of the 12 spies whom Moses sent into the land, it says from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So Caleb is of the tribe of Judah, clearly. Numbers 34, 19, God confirms this saying, of the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Yefunah. So he's of the tribe of Judah, but he has a Kenizzite father. So the only way that that works is if the Kenizzite married his mother after his Judahite father died. So Caleb is of Judah, but he's got a connection to this group of outsiders, and I find that interesting. Let me just throw another bone onto the dog pile. First, uh, First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 18 calls him Caleb, the son of Hezron. Son of Hezron. That's the Judahite father. Hezron is Caleb's blood father of the line of Judah. So uh, I hope that clears that up. But you might say, well, I'm still confused, Rick, because it says he's the son of Yefunah. You're saying on the one hand that he's the son of this Kanaz, his stepson of Kanaz, and, and then his Real father's name is Hezron. So who's this Yefuna guy? What's he got to do with this story? And you might know this every single time the word Yefuna or the name Yefuna is used in the Hebrew scriptures, with one exception, it's connected to Caleb, Caleb, son of Yefuna. It says over and over, Caleb ben Yefuna, Caleb ben Yefuna. It's said all the time. The only exception is all the way at, at uh, First Chronicles seven twenty eight, and that's used of a of a descendant in the line of Asher. So that so that's not a connection there at all. So what's the deal with this son of Yefuna idea? And I think this is cool. The old rabbis, this is in the Gemara section of the Babylonian Talmud. They think it was a nickname that Yefuna wasn't his father. We know Hezron was his father. So who's this Yefuna? Yefuna was a nickname, son of Yefuna, Ben Yefuna, and Yefuna means one who faces away. Why would that be a nickname? Well, it's, it's a wordplay for one thing, Yefuna on Shafana, which is another Hebrew word, and, and it's a wordplay about facing away. One who faces away, faces away from what? What does Kalev face away from? He's the only one with the exception of Joshua, to turn away, face away from the other 10 spies. He's the only one to stand up, which, the, which is the euphemism of one who faces away, one who stands on their own, one who stands up or faces off. He faced off with the 10 faithless spies who made the hearts of Israel melt, while he alone, along with Joshua, servant of Moses, Caleb alone stood up and said, no, we can take this land. So whatever the history is, Caleb is at this point still looking ahead. This mad dog, he's a mad dog for the cause. Verse six continuing. So he came to uh, Joshua and he said, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land and I brought back word to him as in my Heart and I love that. That is the language of faith. I brought back word as in my heart. Caleb had a heart of faith. A heart of faith. Caleb, this this fighter, he's a fighting dog full of faith. That's the second thing to note. Caleb is a fighter, but he, this this mad dog, this fighting dog is full of faith. First Samuel 16, verse 7. We need to remember this because we miss it a lot. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart is where it's at. The heart is where it's at. We don't always see the heart externally. The heart is where it's at. It's where it's really going on. Even this morning, I have no idea what's going on in your hearts. I think I've told you before, what's what's interesting to me in looking at people's faces while I teach is is I, I don't know, I know less how to read people now when I'm teaching than I used to, or at least I used to think. Because I, I found people that look like they are about to pass out of sleep and they're the ones who have copious notes. I'm like, how'd do you do that? <laughs> and then I see other people who, and I don't know, I hope you're not one of these, but, but they do this. Every time you get eye contact with them, they go. <laughs> and I've learned they're the ones who aren't paying attention because they just see that you caught them. Ah, yeah, I'm, I don't like that. Uh, That got me all the way through elementary school. That look right there. (laughs) I don't know what's in your heart, but as is the heart, so goes the person. And Jesus was clear about this. It is the original source of all manner of ugly things that come bubbling up. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, Jesus said, Matthew 15, 18. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. It's not the words that defile, it's the heart because the words come from the heart. The actions, the behaviors, these come from the heart. But for good or for evil, God's looking inside. So you can lift up all manner of nice sounding words, but if your heart is not in them, you're not getting anywhere. It's the heart that matters. How do I affect, then, the evil of the heart? Because the Bible tells us, us Jeremiah 17, that the heart is despicable. It's it's more sick than anything else. How do we heal that? How do we deal with the heart? How do I affect change in the heart? And verse eight, we see Caleb say, nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me, made the heart of this people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord, my God, fully. That will change a heart. Faith changes a heart. Faith causes good things to come from a heart that otherwise bad things would come from. It's faith, it's a full faith. The fighting dog was full of faith. The 10 spies had none. They had what their eyes had seen and their weak hearts had no faith in God otherwise they would have believed him that he brought them this far to lead them in. But they didn't believe him. And so they caused the hearts of the people of Israel to melt and fail. Caleb, man, he was full of faith, so his heart was strong. It wasn't that he was cocky. In fact, even now, as he says, I follow the Lord my God fully, that is not boasting. That is, as Jeremiah put it, Jeremiah nine twenty-three: thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might or a rich man boast of his riches, let him who boasts Boast of this, that he understands and knows me. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. By the way, you have a right to boast in the Lord, especially if, like Kalev, you follow him fully, if he has your whole heart. And by the way, it's not really faith unless it's faith fully fully a heart full of faith. But, but go back real quick for a moment to Numbers chapter 13. Look at the scene. Review what happened back at Kadesh Barnea as the spies came back from spying out the land. Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. It says, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, when we went into the land where you sent us, it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They're doing well so far. Look at what we found. It is an amazing land. Wow, the Lord was right. It's awesome. Nevertheless, verse 28 sadly begins, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. And they're already, uh, 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 But Caleb quieted, that word quieted, it's actually silenced, commanded to silence the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. And so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And there we also saw the Nephilim. Um, <clears throat> the Nephilim died in the flood. It's interesting, people from time to time come up and go, hey, Rick, do you think the Nephilim survived the flood? Well, not unless Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law were Nephilim. No, they did not. Yeah, but it says in Numbers chapter 13, we saw the Nephilim. Yeah, that's because the, the spies with the weak hearts are trying to make their case. They were there too. And if anyone had known the word at that point, they would have said, excuse me, they can't be there, uh, drowned. We saw the Nephilim. They're just trying to bolster their case. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. What a mess. All the children of Israel, all the sons of Israel grumbled, verse two of chapter 14, They said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Well, what were you in Egypt if not plunder? Goodness sakes. So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Well then, you get this whole terrible scene. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces weeping. Joshua and Caleb, they're upset, they're weeping. And we see Joshua and Caleb, they, they tear their clothes. They speak to all the congregation, verse seven of the sons of Israel. They say, the land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, how do you please the Lord? Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If the Lord is pleased with us, if we'll just trust him, Then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey, our lechem, our bread. The people will be our bread. Yes, Ezra dropped something, it's okay, stay focused. Every head turns. They will be our bread. They will be our lechem, Their protection, Caleb and Joshua says, has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones, and of course at that point, the presence of the Lord appears, and things get really serious. It is not faith if it's not faith fully. A half-hearted, partial, or worse, a fearful belief is not only not pleasing to the Lord, it won't see you through the passage. If you wonder on days when you're really struggling with with, with, with your life and with what ha- what's happening and, and you find yourself really down and out and discouraged, faith is needed. Faith is the issue. If you wanna see your way through the passage, faith is required. Speaking of seeing our way, speaking of, again, vision, there is such a difference between, and I'm talking a physical difference here that I have noted in the very eyes of a Christian who trusts God implicitly and the eyes of someone who refuses to accept the things of God. There is a, to me, I've seen a visible difference. Someone who loves the Lord, follows the Lord, and knows God's gonna see us through this passage, and someone who struggles with that, finds us incomprehensible ways, (laughs) incomprehensible And because they don't understand the ways of the Lord, they upset with the Lord, they they shake the fist at the Lord. A full faith makes all the difference in the world between a twinkle in the eye and a tear in the eye. As we look forward, and so I'm gonna read this verse again and you've, you've got to, this needs to be front and center in your faith. Isaiah 55 verse eight, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Do you know what that means? That means we're not always going to understand because we don't think like he thinks. We don't do the things the way he does them. We're learning to do things his way. We're learning how to think his way, and that's called faith. Faith is trusting him and what he's doing and finding that what he's doing really is right, even when it doesn't seem right to me. Ezekiel 18, verse 29, God is speaking, he says, but the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Hey, guess what? If you're struggling with God, it's your problem. This is a you problem. It's not a God problem. This is your deal. This is your story. You're, you're not seeing him for who he is or trusting him for what he is doing. Romans eleven thirty three. this bursts out of a heart of great faith as Paul writes, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And Paul says that, yes, with praise and honor and glory, his ways are unfathomable. That's why he's God and I am not. And that's faith. Are you willing to, to trust him in this passage, even in the ways that you don't know, even with things that you don't understand. Why is it happening? Why is it going down like this? Why is America in the state that it's in? I don't understand. Of course not. You're not God. Faith says, but he knows what he's doing, and I'm gonna trust him in it. You know why? Because right now, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, tells us we see in a mirror darkly, dimly, I I don't clearly see, I look as though I'm looking through a reflection. I think I see, oh yes, I see very clearly. I've got fine visual acuity in this world. No you don't, we see darkly. Even the most faithful among us doesn't see every nuance of what God is about and what he's doing. We see in a mirror dimly, then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, Paul says, then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. So we're not going to get it all now. There will never be a single day in your life where you can honestly say, I know all that there is to know of the ways of the Lord. I figured it out. It's not gonna happen. So someone might say, so what, I'm just supposed to trust him? Yes. Yes, that's the idea. If you want eyes that twinkle, if you wanna age well. I remember the first time I saw Chuck Smith preach in person, and he was, he was quite a bit older in years at that point. It was a Northwest Pastors Conference back in 2003. It was before we started this church. And he showed up at the conference and he was one of the speakers and he got up to speak and, and he was having to, even at that time, hold on to the pulpit and steady himself. And, and as he started, if you've ever heard Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapel movement, if you've heard Chuck preach, you know that he has a very straightforward voice that's kind of like this and it doesn't move a whole lot and if you're listening and, and you know, that's kind of how he sounds. And so he starts into his teaching and, and I'm like, well, he's not as exciting as the previous four guys were, but okay, I'll, I'll listen, see what he has to say. And I'm watching him, but there were two things I noticed. Once, one was how absolutely engaging he was, and he was just reading scripture. But the second thing I noticed, and I found it fascinating, and I started to notice this in a lot of older saints who absolutely trust the Lord. I saw a twinkle in his eye. And if you've seen, again, if you've seen Chuck, and he's just a really good example of this, he, he was a pastor who just, he had a twinkle in his eyes. It was inevitable. It was like, I, he just, there's something different about this guy. And, and he would smile as, as he was preaching. Even if he was talking about something like Sodom and Gomorrah, he'd like, you know, and then, the, and then the Lord sent fire down and completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he'd have a smile on his face. I'm like, how do you do that? He had a twinkle about him. Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 10 says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You want strength as you age in this passage, in your older years, and I'm talking to our senior saints, you want strength, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not the whining and complaining that your body doesn't work like it used to. That'll drag you down. The joy of the Lord will put a twinkle right back into your eye. And some of us here this morning need to take possession of his joy. We need the joy of the Lord before we can fully understand his promises. Let me say that again. We need the joy of the Lord before we can fully understand his promises. See, when I see believers stumbling along and struggling, Christians who have sorrow and a shadow in their eyes, I have a very simple recommendation for you. Pray for a mad dog faith. Pray for a mad dog faith. Pray, oh Lord, increase my faith fully. Because I guarantee you, if you're struggling to get from one day to the next and you're discouraged, it is a faith issue. It's a faith issue. It's why the spies all died in the wilderness, but two. And it's why Caleb now at 85 is still up for the fight, verse nine, so Moses swore on that day, Caleb still speaking, saying, surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and your children forever, because you followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years. That's another good point, if you're still alive, it's because the Lord's letting you, okay? Not because, wow, I went to the gym every day growing up, no, it's because God's letting you live, muscle bound or not. So he said, the Lord has let me live these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, verse 10, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. Happy birthday, Caleb. 85 years old today. Shows up on his birthday after the faith fiasco at Kadesh Barnea. Again, every one of those Spies died. In fact, everyone of that generation, do you know what the number would be? Of the fighting men 20 years old and up, 603,548 hearts failed. 603,548 men failed their families, failed their wives, failed their children, failed to have faith in the Lord. That's just the number of fighting men. How many then of their wives had hearts that failed right along with them and also died in the wilderness. Death was a daily occurrence. This is something I don't know if we think about often, but in the 38 years between uh, when they came to Kadesh Barnea and when they finally came to the plains of Moab and crossed the Jordan, in those 38 years, you can average out the number of deaths at at least 10 a day. 10 a day, 70 a week. Constant funerals, just everywhere. Someone just, another one dropped. That was, this generation of the sons of Israel that crossed into the promised land, death was a daily occurrence. It was something that was very well known. Numbers 14, verse 24 says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. And so Caleb is calling that to mind. Man, it was a long time ago. You remember, Joshua, we were both, we were both just kiddos, 40. But here we are and here I am, 85 years old, on his birthday, and how does he want to celebrate? Let's just say in a big way, verse 11. I'm still as strong as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. Do you think he means physical? See, I don't think so. You you say, oh wow, he, he must have just kept in great shape. He's 85. I don't care what kind of shape you're in at 85, you're still 85. But his heart was in great shape and his mentality and his spirit, he he was in great shape because of his entire attitude of faith. Faith kept him in great shape. Now then, verse 12, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you have heard on that day that Anakim were there. Notice he doesn't say Nephilim because Caleb knows there were no Nephilim. There were Anakim. There were Anakim who were large guys, big dudes. Goliath would be of that lineage. So yeah, there there are some big people in the land with great fortified cities and then he says, perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. This fighting dog, full of faith, number three, was also faithful. Full of faith and faithful, two different things though. To be full of faith, full of trust, having that twinkle in the eye, that spark of joy, the joy of the Lord which is your strength, that's to be full of faith, but to be faithful is how you walk it. And Caleb and is a beautiful picture of faithfulness. He still wants to fight, he's not done. How do you live a faithful life? It's very simple, you stay in the fight. You stay in the fight, you don't retire from the fight. You stay in it, you continue to fight. That's how you remain faithful. You stop fighting, you will not be faithful, or found faithful. In Jesus' picture of the faithful servant, who is found, you know, on the day his master comes, his master says, well done, good and faithful servant. What's the faithful servant doing? Serving. He's in the fight, he's involved, he's engaged, he's doing his master's business. When the master comes, he is found faithful. And the only way to be found faithful, the only way to be faithful is to stay in the fight. But I love how Kalev puts this and it's really interesting phraseology. Again, in verse 12, he says, perhaps the Lord will be with me, perhaps. Now, at first glance, you might go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like faith. I'm gonna go fight this fight, maybe God will help. It sounds like he's hedging a little bit, doesn't it? No, no, this is the language of faithfulness. Let me explain. He's saying, maybe I'll be the one he uses. But notice at the end of the verse, he still says, as the Lord has spoken. So put it in context. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. What do you mean? The Lord has spoken, they will be driven out. Maybe I get to be the one to do it. His absolutely faith, uh, believing, his faith is that the Lord is gonna drive him out. But what Caleb is saying as a statement of faith is I wanna be the one he uses. He's gonna drive him out one way or the other, with or without me, but I wanna be the one that he uses. That is faithful language. That's the language of someone engaged in the fight. The question is not whether or not it's God's will, it's whether or not he'll use me in this particular circumstance. Either way, I'm gonna fight. Either way, I'm going in. Either way, Kaleb would say, either way, you and I might say, we're gonna fight for the Lord. Some will say, ah, evangelism is just not my calling. So? They'll say, teaching the Bible, that, that's not my thing. So? Others will say, I'm just not that into worship. So, is it God's will? Then it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you, you think that you're equipped. It doesn't matter how you think that you're called. It's still God's will. It's still gonna get done. The question is, do you wanna be part of it or not? But it does not change the fact that God is calling for evangelists and teachers and worshipers. He's calling all of us to all of these things. The question is, will you stand up and fight? Or are you gonna sit back? 1,000 years after this conversation, three young men are gonna stand up to the world's first global dictator, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's threatening them with a fiery end, a fiery furnace, Heated up seven times hotter than usual, and in Daniel chapter three, verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. When they say, even if he does not, in the same way that Caleb says, perhaps, They're not hedging. You know, they're not copping out. It's just that faithfulness, listen, faithfulness does not concern itself with the immediate results. Faithfulness doesn't care. Caleb says, perhaps he will let me drive them out, but if Caleb marches up a hill in Hebron and is killed by a giant, so be it. If one of his sons drive them out, great, but I'm gonna be in the fight. And the bottom line is a faithful heart is not concerned with the immediate results. Faithfulness is not concerned with what we see today. Oh man, we had this great program and nobody showed up. So, did you fight? Yeah, but I I did this thing. So, were you engaged in the fight? Doesn't matter what you see. Doesn't matter what the immediate results are. This language of perhaps Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out, but I'm to still fight. I'm still in. Why? Because his thoughts are not my thoughts and his ways, my ways are not his ways. He knows something I don't know. So I'm not gonna worry myself with the things I don't know. I'm just gonna do what I know. And I know he's called me to fight. And add to that that this faithful dog, man, he is on the hunt for giant bread. Large loaves. The Anakim, these big dudes, these bullies in the land. Why? Because the 78-year-old, well, actually now 85-year-old coot, (laughs) feels as young and vigorous as he did at the age of 40. And he's ready for giant battles. Those of you with some miles behind you, let me ask you this question. Do you remember the early fights of your faith? Do you remember the early battles? The ones you fought 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago? Do you remember the battles 50 years ago that you were fighting? And now ask yourself this. Do you still have the same will to fight now that you had then? That's the example we're seeing here. That's the kind of faithful fighting that God is calling for all of us, the kind of faithfulness that he wants to see in us. We've read this before, I'll read it to you again here. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So I love that. Some of you actually got persecuted early on for your faith, and you stood up, and you preached Jesus anyway, Some of you weren't persecuted, but you stood with those who were, that's good. You stood alongside, you encouraged your brothers and sisters when they were going through the hard time. I am not in the public school system like my brother Jim is. He's fighting a fight that I am not fighting, but I can stand with Jim, I can pray for Jim, I can be alongside my brother, and that engages me even in his fight. But the the Hebrew pastor goes on saying, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You remember when? That's great. You have in need of endurance right now, he says. For in yet a little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but are those who have faith, listen, faith to the preserving of the soul. I'm gonna give you some medical advice here, especially if you're getting older, especially if you're in a place now where most of your week is taken up with doctor visits. This is great medical advice, and you're not gonna get this from the AARP website. And you're not going to get it from the good folks down at the Medicare office. Okay, the Bible teaches that a fighting, full faithed faithfulness is preserving to the soul. That's an interesting phrase. Hebrews 10:39. It is faith that is preserving to the soul. The word soul is suke. It's vitality of mind and intellect. Suke soul. Preserving is the word parapoiesis. You don't have to write that down, but just note this. Preserving means purchased possession. Faith. Faith is unto the purchased possession, the possession of the soul. Faith possesses mind and soul. You want to have a sharp, clear mind? Faith is the first thing you ought to be doing before you pop any one of those dozens of pills in the little case that you go through each day. You know you pop it open and you have your five or six pills. Before you do any of those, faith. Faith is, what, what, what's that? Uh, you guys can probably help me with this, I can't even remember it, but there's an, uh, a commercial on the radio, there's a kind of a, um, a supplement or something that's supposed to really help memory and mind power. You know the one I'm talking about? CoQ10. Co- I'm hearing echinacea, CoQ10, uh, someone said uh, CBD. I hope not, but anyway. <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff where the world is trying to supplement life, right? The things that we take, even the vitamin, we have to supplement life. And now there's stuff that will supplement my, my memory. You want to have a, a strong memory? Faith. 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 A vibrant Faith is preserving of the mental intellectual acuity and sharpness of thought and cognizance. Now I know what some are gonna say. They're gonna say, okay, pastor, that sounds all well and good. Maybe that preaches well. What about dementia? What about Alzheimer's? And with all due respect to that difficulty at the end of life that many face, please listen. Floyd Strader was my pastor. I've talked about Floyd in the past. Floyd was... 69 years old when I got hired as youth pastor at Not Avenue Christian Church in California. Well, I was 69 at the time and had a fight like Caleb. He was in ministry for 60 plus years. He's double the time that I've been in ministry. He, he served as a pastor, as a teaching pastor. He went home to be with Jesus in 2013 at the age of 88. In the last year and a half or so of his life, his family had to put him in a full-time care center. His, his wife Uh, Betty had passed away years before, and he couldn't live on his own. So they had to put him in a full-time care center, and and I've told you this story, but when we were down there um, back in, I think, 2011, 2012, I went to visit him, and I hadn't seen him in in well over a decade. So I went to see him and and went into his room and sat down with him, and Floyd was there, and he was asleep, he was sitting in his chair, and he just sounded asleep. And his daughter said, he'll wake up in a few minutes and just sit here and wait for him to wake up. And so we waited and finally he woke up and at first he didn't have any idea who I was. I'm like, dude, I served with you for five years. I annoy the snot out of you. You know that, you know. I was your youth pastor. And and then he began to remember and we began to talk about Things. And, and it was such a blessing to see him before he died, but my friends, what I learned when we went to see him was that Floyd was up every single morning going door to door around the care center preaching the gospel. He couldn't always remember his daughter's name. He couldn't remember certain things in, in daily life that he had to do. The memory was slipping, but the spiritual acuity was as sharp as ever hand him a Bible, and he would go. And the residents in the care center knew if they got a knock on the door at 7 a.m., it's Pastor Floyd. And he never stopped serving. Why? Floyd still had a dog in the fight. Don't retire from the fight. Kalev didn't. Floyd didn't. Kalev is still hungry, as I said, for giant bread. Did he know that his faithfulness would would cause him to remain vigorous and youthful? No, he was just full of faith and really hungry, you know, <laughs> ready to keep fighting. But there's something else to note about. It's interesting that he, he called them Lechem and now he wants to go and he wants to eat this bread and face this giant bread. There's something about this that Caleb seems to understand in a life of faith. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20 says, Lord, although the Lord has given you bread of privation, and water of oppression, he your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Listen, where do we best behold our teacher? Don't you dare say Sunday morning in a sermon. Where do we best behold our Rabbi Yeshua? It's not Wednesday night when we've crossed into the second hour. Where do we best behold our teacher? It is when we are fighting in adversity, is it not? Isn't it when we're in the midst of the hardest times that we see Jesus, that we're crying out to Jesus, that we're hanging on every word that Jesus says, that our hope is in him, even if that hope is shaky, we're turning to him? And I told you a year ago in September when we were in Ghana with Christopher, there wasn't a single day. I No, there was not an hour that we weren't praying. We spent more time in prayer. That was an amazing retreat because we spent a month in Africa trying to get our son out and not knowing when we were gonna come home and our reliance on the Lord was it was massive. It was constant. It was wonderful. The fellowship with the Lord when we were eating the bread of privation. And we got home, and it was so good to be home. And after a couple of weeks, I'm like, Lord, I haven't talked to you in a while. Because I wasn't in the struggle because the fight had eased up, and hey, we need times when the fight eases up, so don't get me wrong on that, but when you're facing giant problems, and some of you may be this morning, that's a good thing. I don't mean to sound flippant or insensitive, but listen, if we think we draw near to or learn from Jesus on a peaceful Sunday morning, we miss the point. If we think that by ladies by going to the ladies' retreat, you're gonna draw near to the Lord like you never have before, hey, you're gonna learn good stuff, you will draw near to him, you'll worship him, but we best learn when we're facing giants. Our faith gets stronger when we're fighting in the hills of Hebron, or when we are out in the storms of the sea. Think of it this way, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 on the shores of the Galilee, Imagine the disciples out there kicking back, eating their bread and fish, and looking around, going, This is awesome. You know, I mean, aside from having to go out and pick up the the leftovers, it's a pretty relaxed afternoon. They didn't understand at that point who Jesus was, they didn't get what he was doing. But that night, after the storm hit them hard on the sea, as Jesus comes walking out to them on the water, that's when they knew who he was. Matthew 14, those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. It was in the struggle, in the storm, in the fight. Caleb didn't just wanna fight giants. He needed to fight giants. He had to keep going. And so with all who stay in the fight, our, our eyes will behold our teacher. And... and those who fight the good fight of the faith, they are the ones who are closest to Jesus. I have always been and and will always be closest to Jesus when I'm in the midst of the struggle. And, And isn't it so typical of us in our flesh that when I'm in the midst of the struggle, all I wanna be is out of the struggle. I just wanna be done with the struggle. I just want my vacation, my break, my retirement. When I'm in the struggle, I have to trust him, and my faith increases and gets strong. Close fellowship with Jesus. Listen, verse thirteen. Let's finish this out. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. Stop right there and we'll come back and finish. Kiryat Arba, Kiryat means city. So it's city of Arba, the city of Arba. And the Bible tells us Arba was one of those Anakim, one of those big guys, so the city's named after Arba, but it's also interesting that Arba means large and loud. This is the city of the large and loud. The giants in these hills were living large and living loud, arrogant, rebellious, brawling brutes. And Caleb says, that's where I want to be. I want to go to the loud city, the large place. I want to go to that region. And after Caleb, the name gets changed. So it's no longer Kiryat Arba. That was the former name we're told. It becomes now Hevron. And Hevron, the more common biblical name, means fellowship. Fellowship. What, is, what does Caleb get at the end of all this? he gets fellowship. This fighting, full of faith, faithful dog, got number four, fellowship, fellowship. And I love that that's part of the promise, and and it really is, brothers and sisters. You've heard of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Which is one of my favorite movies. Watched it with the boys uh, about a week or so ago, and going through the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Fellowship of the Ring, and what was great about the fellowship is when they're in the fight, they had to rely on each other. And there really is something of brotherhood and chivalry and and fellowship that's beautiful in those movies. This is better. This is the sharing of the saints, this is the fellowship in the fight. We get to do this together. And by the way, I remember what the second thing was that, that I was trying to tell you about the round tables. Isn't aging great? It's about fellowship. I can't can't underscore that enough. It is not about lecture time. If you come to a round table, don't come expecting us to give you boxes to check and things to fill in and, and all kinds of resources so that now after spending an hour with these people, I have the answer. No, no, it's about fellowship. It's about struggling together. It's about learning together. And that's what we have in the church. Christians who go rogue are completely missing this. How desperately we need the strength and the joy that happens in devoted fellowship. Acts 2:42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread, which yes was communion, but it was so much more, and to prayer. It was taking their meals together and they would break bread and pass the wine in remembrance of Jesus and continue a meal together and they would pray together. I'll tell you what, praying together with a group of people, men, women are all together, makes no difference, draws you together. It's fellowship. And there's even more to this idea of fellowship as, as this, this mad dog comes fighting faithfully He comes into the land, he wants to keep on going, and he ends up with fellowship. Listen, God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, as we fight this fight, as we stay in the fight, we have fellowship with Jesus, unlike any other time. And there is even more to that fellowship, and I want to end with this verse here, Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing else matters, Paul says. Everything else is worthless. I just want to know him, and whatever it takes to know him better, that's what I'm gonna do. He says, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and Paul says, for whom I have suffered the loss of many things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now listen very carefully, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Kalev was in fellowship. My friends, my last thought to you this morning, keep your dog in the fight. Keep your dog in the fight with a full faith and with faithfulness in fellowship. And how does the chapter end? Then the land had rest from war. Our rest is coming. Our retirement, in fact the retirement plan is out of this world. And it's coming, it's coming. It is not yet. Keep your dog in the fight.